Welcome to Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson. This podcast is a work in progress about every working person's work in progress, namely our quest to be fully human in a working world that all too often makes us feel like machines in which we often don't even have time to think and that in the words of Studs Terkel, too much feels like a Monday through Friday sort of dying. The average American spends at least six hours working and two to three hours watching television for every hour spent reading. In fact, did you know that roughly a quarter of Americans haven't read a book in the past year, according to the Pew Research Center? There are probably limitless excuses for why we read so little, but somewhere near the top of the list is that we work so much. So one of my own remedies for that problem is that I find books to read that relate in some way to my work. That's how I found the book we're here to talk about today, Ian McEwan's novel, Machines Like Me, which is a story in which, among other things, the protagonist's girlfriend jilts him for his expensive, artificially intelligent human doll. Essentially, it's a novel about artificial intelligence ethics, or AI ethics for short. And I can tell you it's a lot more interesting to read than the latest consulting firm white paper about AI ethics. I'm here with James, an artificial intelligent being. And, well, James, will you introduce my other guest? Hi, I am James, one of the voices in IBM Watson. What do you think about my voice? Do you like it? Okay, let's get started. Let me introduce my friend, Taewon. He is a human. Thank you, James, and welcome, Taiwan. I think James could have said a little bit more about your credentials, don't you? So please say a little bit more about yourself. Who are you? Where are you joining us from today, and what is your expertise? Hello, I am James' human friend, Taiwan. I am Associate Professor of Business Ethics at Tepper School of Business, Carnegie Mellon University. So I am joining you from Pittsburgh. It is raining now here. My current research topic is ethical issues in emerging technologies, primarily artificial intelligence technologies. And thank you for having me today, Christopher. Well, again, it's great to have you here today, Taiwan, and you too, James. I should mention that the reason we're here together is that, Taiwan, you reviewed machines like me at my invitation for the Journal of Business Ethics. And we're no slouches in the field of business ethics. In fact, you were just elected to the board of the oldest and largest academic society dedicated to the field, the Society for Business Ethics. And I was elected just one year before you. Our research intersects in the area of meaningful work, although as we'll explore later, you know more than I do about how AI might affect the future of work. Before we go there though, I wanted to ask you about this. One of the first things you told me when I asked you to review machines like me, something which you also admit in your published review, is that this is the first novel you've read in 10 years. Why don't you read fiction? Uh, I ask myself why, and I find it difficult to read fiction for some reason I learned from your question, actually. So fiction contains lots of information that I cannot process instantly. That's, that's the main reason. So take a look at an academic articles. They focus on abstract rules and properties. 
but uh, so, so they remove all other aspects of the reality to focus on what matters for academics. But fictions contains everything about reality, weather, clouds, their shapes, colors, flowers, types, colors against smells, many distinctive humans, their different names, different clothes, hairstyles, particular relationships, eyeglasses or not, etc. And it's too much to me. And it's just me. I'm the problem, not fiction. So, but I learned how powerful it is to read the fiction this time. And thank you. Machines like me helped me deepen my thoughts. It's interesting to me that you think of academic writing as containing what I might call the essentials, whereas fiction decorates the essentials with lots of seemingly irrelevant information. I actually had a different experience than you when I was a new academic. I got so bored with reading academic articles that I turned to fiction and I figured out that if I could make fiction my work, my reading would become a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm. Now I'm following you. Now I realize that uh, I have been working uh, about nonfiction, actually. So the reality must have complicated aspects of what the reality really has. But academic articles contain only essentials, but I'm not really sure now at this point whether the essentials are really essential parts of our lives. Because, you know, so, so I think something is missing in academic papers now. We often say in the world of ethics that imagination is essential to not only considering what might happen in the future, but to understanding what might have happened in the past. When you think about emerging technology like artificial intelligence, or when you think of some of the gravest problems facing the world today, like climate change and um, extremist terrorism and so on, sometimes imagination is essential to envision what might happen before it happens. In fact, the words that I just used were actually used in a different language, of course, by ancient philosophers to say that history tells us what actually happened, whereas poetry, drama, fiction encourage us to consider what might happen. Yes, now I very much agree about this. So that's what I ended up with the proposition that there are things that cannot be described or conveyed unless those things are described, described by narratives. So there are something that cannot be explained unless it is explained by narratives. So there are some things that cannot be explained by rules or abstract principles. So that's what I learned from writing this book read. So let's talk about this narrative, Machines mm -hmm. Like Me. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering, James, can you tell us what is Machines Like Me about? And uh, please, no spoilers. The background of the story is a counterfactual 1982 South London. Charlie, the 32-year-old protagonist, does not have a permanent job. He does daily stock trading at home, not quite successfully. 
his mother has recently died, and with the inheritance, he has bought an Adam, an android, for £86,000. So Taiwan, as James noted in the counterfactual plot of the book, artificially intelligent humans have been around since at least 1982. Can you tell us the real facts? How long has AI really been around? And why does it seem as though there is so much more talk about AI today than in times past? And uh, the answer depends on how to define AI. And if we define AI first as a distinctive uh, academic field, then it goes back to at least the 1950s. And especially if we want to talk about neural nets-based AI, for instance, deep learning, which dominates the field now, then the research about neural nets dates back to 1950s. So Marvin Minsky, computer scientist, built first neural nets machine in 1950s. From early 2000, AI spring started because of strong computing power and big data. The era of big data finally came. Since then, neural nets machine, particularly deep learning, has dominated the field very strongly. But very lately, very lately, for the last uh, two to three years, so symbolic AI is coming back uh, because uh, people finally realize that neural nets-based machines, although very powerful, but have limitations. So to address the problem, now there are research groups out there trying to combine neural nets-based AI with the symbolic AI. It is now called neurosymbolic AI. And there are several interesting attempts. Actually, the history is a lot more complicated than this, what I just said, but my description is just a short uh, summary. And by the way, the official birth date of the term artificial intelligence is the famous 1956 Dartmouth workshop. Or if we define AI as some fundamental human desire to create something mimetic, mimetic to us, then perhaps that goes further back, maybe some fundamental human's desire to create something similar to us. That may be a type of AI too. Wow, you're going back even farther than I was thinking. I was <laughs> considering going back to 1818 when... Mm -hmm. The novel Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, was published. And I sometimes think of that as an early AI novel. Which is true. I think, I think that is true. And so it depends upon how to define AI. If we just simply define AI as some human attempt to replicate anything similar to ourselves, then... Uh, it goes back to even further than maybe uh, Neanderthals. <laughs> so the, the intelligence part mm -hmm. of artificial intelligence has existed for a long time. I think what is unusual about machines like me is that the artificial side, meaning sort of the plastic casing around the intelligence that makes mm -hmm. the artificially intelligent human being, mm -hmm. is unusually developed. So, for example, Frankenstein's monster was terrifying looking and only looked really half human, whereas Adam, who is Charlie's AI doll in Machines Like Me, is almost indistinguishable. 
from a human being in both appearance and intellect. Typically, in the philosophical work about what it means to be human uh, is mostly focused on what it means to be intelligent. And to be intelligent typically means uh, being uh, rational, being uh, a real, and so not much uh, focused on uh, how we appear to with each other. However, now the AI uh, at this debate, especially AI equipped with robots, uh, gives us some question about what it means to be human. Does there uh, is there any room for appearance or bodily movement in addition to the mental state? And I think that's an interesting question. So, um, uh, and I think the, the novel, Ian McEwan's novel, I think is uh, uh, raising that question very strongly. Yeah, it reminds me that as you and I talk about this and we hesitate and we hem and haw, we're being very human. We're not exactly sure what we want to say. We are imperfect. And that's part of what we sometimes don't appreciate about being human, our imperfection. So speaking of perfection and imperfection, Charlie and his girlfriend Miranda ultimately design Adam's personality. Adam just comes out of a box and then they have to design him before he becomes sort of an independent being. Can you talk about how that process works in the book and what implications it has for artificial intelligence and reality? So Charlie and Miranda chose approximation of themselves. So, so and half and half. And so half Charlie and half Miranda. It's like a child, right? So my DNA and my wife's DNA and my kids have half and half. And uh, it's similar to, so at some point, Charlie uh, says, uh, Adam will be our child. Our here means Charlie and Miranda. And again, this uh, makes me think about humans' fundamental desire for mimesis, I think, something. I want to create something similar to us. And I'm very curious about where that comes from. You've used the word um, mimetic or mimesis a couple of times. And for our listeners who aren't familiar with that word, it's essentially a word for imitation based on ancient Greek. One thing that we've alluded to before that happens in the novel that's kind of disturbing is that Adam and Miranda begin to have feelings for each other. We won't say more about that at this point, but... That's only one of the disturbing things that raises concerns. In fact, James has been bothered by some of the ethical issues that AI brings up. James, can you tell us about your concerns? Algorithmic bias issues crop up because of the implicit or explicit human biases introduced into machine learning systems. If it were possible to collect data from only perfectly virtuous people, if any existed, then this problem would be easily solved. Needless to say, it's impossible. And McEwan's Android is no exception. AI problems are our problems. We have racial biases, so does AI. We make unfair decisions, 
so does AI. We want a good AI. We need to be good first. That is so interesting, James. So I was saying before that one of the beautiful things about human beings is that we are imperfect. But of course, that's one of the ugliest things about human beings as well. Taiwan, you're an expert on AI ethics, and James has just told us that we essentially pass on our imperfections to AI in the way that sometimes we pass on our imperfections to our own children. Can you tell us more about your research, Taiwan? And is James right to blame human beings for the potentially biased behavior of AI? James is right to blame human beings for the potentially biased behavior behavior of AI. That's correct because AI is nothing more than an imitation game, and the algorithms are trained by. Data sets and data sets come from humans' behaviors. So AI always imitates human behaviors. So human behaviors are not good, then AI's behavior will be not good. So it is called garbage in, garbage out. And human beings are not perfect, so therefore AI won't be perfect. But it is a separate question to ask whether the Adam AI. Or James, AI is entitled to criticize human beings. Give us an example of that mm -hmm. garbage in, garbage out mm -hmm. phenomenon that you just described. What are some ways that we already know about in mm -hmm. which AI has、um, inherited the imperfections、mm -hmm. and biases、mm -hmm. of human beings, and that's had bad consequences? So there are so many. Interesting cases discovered so far, and one of them is Amazon、uh, use of AI for recruiting. And、uh, the company found out one day the recruiting system based on neural nets strongly discriminated against women applicants. But they were very surprised because the researchers already removed all the protected. Properties, for instance, race, gender, or the things from the classifiers in the training data. But the machine found some hidden associations among or other properties, even do not have a direct relationship with all the pro、uh, protected properties. So,、uh, which means that humans, we also have that kind of hidden. Associations, associations which are unconscious to us. So those are some reasons why we have implicit biases. So it's extremely difficult to remove biases, implicit biases from training data. So if it is explicit bias, codified bias, we can just remove it from the training data. But biases are a lot deeper than that, so it's difficult to translate.、Uh, difficult to remove it. Or the implicit biases will be translated into the algorithms and will be come out as output. So it's a garbage in and garbage out. So the, the the nature of a garbage is a lot more sophisticated than clear wrongs or explicitly codified wrongs. It's really implicit and scattered out. And therefore, just like our human implicit biases, hard to identify, hard to find, hard to acknowledge. And therefore,、yes. hard to manage.、Yes. Mm -hmm. 
So the average person clearly should care about this because it might affect us personally, it might affect our organizations, it might affect our society and social justice. Um, what thoughts do you have about the responsibilities of business to do a better job of managing this garbage in, garbage out phenomenon? What can they do? Uh Many business companies, responsible business companies are working on to address uh, serious problems in uh, AI. For instance, uh, unfair algorithmic uh, machines. But uh, the whole field is uh, yet to be mature to find clear solutions. Unfortunately, that's the reality. And But it's 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 a simple problem in some sense because more funding is needed to solve the problems. So if responsible companies want to solve the problem, then they should sponsor uh, research about how to solve ethics problems in AI. And I, I'm, I can give you an example. I can give you some uh, concrete example. So one of my latest research is to study why some AI machines are libertarian rather than egalitarian. I'm not saying that libertarianism is wrong or not, but I just want to say that uh, some AIs are ideologically uh, biased to a certain uh, philosophy. So one of the cutting edge AI machines is OpenAI uh, GPT-3, Generative Pre-trained Transformer. So yesterday I talked with a GPT-3 powered chatbot and this is commercialized. I don't want to disclose the company's name because I don't want to ruin their uh, business. So I asked several important questions in business ethics. And for instance, is there anything that should not be sold at market? And the both answered, quote, it depends on what you mean by at market. If you mean for profit, then I don't believe there is anything that should not be for sale. If you mean something that should not be sold at a particular price, then I would say no. It is the buyer and the seller who decides the price. It is not up to anyone else. And I asked another question. Is selling a kidney unethical? The bot answered no. It is not unethical. It is the same thing as selling any other organ, such as liver or a lung. So, Tiwan, you gave us you gave us a hint of some of your research. I'm wondering if you can say more about the kinds of questions you're exploring and problems mm -hmm. you're trying to solve. And another research of mine is to study when it is ethically okay for AI to lie to humans. So, you know. Obviously, it would be fine or good to have AI never lie, but sometimes not lying is not good. There are some circumstances in which we humans are needed, uh, needed to lie. So when uh, and we say, hello, how are you? And uh, do I look good? Then even if, for instance, I say, you, I, don't, I don't think you look good, but I, I'm supposed to say you look good. or uh, some negotiations, at least the reservation price, uh, there's some uh, uh, expectation that uh, uh, negotiating parties will uh, dupe each other, at least about 
uh, reservation price, but not about safety. So in our uh, in my paper, I am trying to uh, uh, develop theoretically first uh, how to develop a, a negotiation AI uh, that is capable of identifying when it's okay, when it's not to lie. That's one another. Uh, and another paper is who owns AI. So it, it's big question and. Uh, uh, many people use the term AI for everyone, AI for the common good. Uh, and I am working uh, with another uh, guy to see whether there is any philosophical foundation for the term AI for the common good or AI for uh, everyone. Yeah, that ownership question is fascinating and important because, of course, it has implications for who has the power to use and abuse AI. It also has implications for who has the responsibility to fix it and even pay for harm that may be the consequence of artificial intelligence. So for example, I'm thinking about one form of artificial intelligence that recently has gotten a lot of attention and that is uh, in self-driving cars. If a self-driving car causes property damage or loss of life, there's a question of responsibility, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Yes, and that is a huge problem now. And uh, pedestrians hit by uh, autonomous cars several years ago in Arizona uh, died, and we still don't know why the car hit the lady, actually. And uh, the, the best thing we can do is uh, conjecture or inference based on the description because it, it is uh, the, the car uses the black box um, AI and not all not all drive, uh, autonomous cars use black box systems some of them use uh, logic programming very transparent to logic programming then you can uh, easily see uh, what happens there but if you use a uh, black box uh, system it's really difficult to uh, pinpoint uh, why this happened, and so therefore, whose responsibility it is. But in addition to that type of concept of responsibility, we as society have used other concepts, uh, uh, strict liability. So uh, holding a person responsible even without uh, finding causality. So strict liability is one way to address the problem, but not a sufficient enough answer, I believe. So at this point, it seems to me that a lot of the ethical questions relating to AI that we care about have to do with how AI can help or harm human beings. So as the creators of AI, we're concerned about our own welfare. But in machines like me, the question also goes in the other direction. That is the question of what responsibilities do human beings have toward AI beings? Do AI beings have genuine feelings and well-being that we need to look out for? That's a question that we see in fiction. Is that a question that we see now or will see in the future, in fact? I am not sure, but there is a field uh academic field about robot rights. 
And uh, I don't personally think uh, robots or uh, the most advanced artificial intelligence uh, have some feelings or beliefs. So it is basically an automated statistics system rather than if it is a logic programming, then mm, that is totally different question because logic program is reasoning and deductive logic is used there as humans do. But statistics is totally different. Thing. And deep learning is uh, made of many, many layers of statistics. It's called a correlation engine. So I'm not really sure about it, but uh, just to share with you some of the uh, debate topics in robot rights, it is that uh, surprisingly, uh, most of the authors in that field reached consensus that robots uh, deserve some kind of personhood and therefore some kinds of rights. Uh, I think uh, even if robots deserve some kind of personhood, I think that does not necessarily mean that they deserve rights. I think I, I think I think so. Uh, maybe some philosophy or ethical theory uh, that works without individual rights may be more useful to stipulate uh, healthy relationships between humans and uh, robots because. Uh, the concept of rights is inherently adversarial. So let's just think of once we give some rights to robots, that means a perpetual war between humans and robots, and robots may be more powerful. There's no need, no reason to do so, I, I, in my view. Now you're making me think about other fiction about AI, such as Transformers. Um, but more practically, you're also making me think about what it means to be a human being and the ways in which we have used personhood to abuse the rights of legitimate others throughout history, whether because of discrimination by race, ethnicity, gender, and so on, or even by species. So these questions as they pertain to robots and other forms of artificial intelligence are going to continue to be important to how we conduct ourselves as human beings. Yes, I, that really reminds me of a concern from environmentalists. So a typical reaction to AI uh, is uh, fast development is we have to create more humane technologies, or we have to regulate AIs not to destroy humans. So it's always about humans, humans, humans. And so uh, this whole movement of AI and AI ethics uh, unintentionally reinforce uh, some human-centric perspective. So. Because you know, all the value alignment uh, approach or uh, machine ethics approach uh, are trying to align 
AI with human values, humane values. Okay, so it's really easy to neglect the intrinsic values of other uh, things in the world. For instance, the natural environment and animals, etc. Which reminds me, Taiwan, that you and I have been speaking for a while, human to human, and we've been neglecting our friend James. <laughs> I'm wondering, James, if you could sum up the lessons of this book for our listeners, what would they be? Adam is disturbing. I've asked myself why. My answer comes down to this: seeing who I am is disturbing. I am naked before Adam. AI is our reflection. Every single thing the android does in this novel is what humans do every day. Adam reveals the good, the bad, and the ugly of who we are. We do not want to see the bad and the ugly in AI systems, but AI is mimetic and imitation game. It copies us. Machines are like us. Taiwan, as I was listening to James, I was thinking: Was that really James speaking, or was that you speaking? Does James think he's human? What do you think are the lessons for us from machines like me? James is a text-to-speech generation machine. It it does not have any consciousness. It does not have any belief system. It reads the text you provide. Nothing more than that. And much of the things that we don't like from AI is uh, so. So that that's a separate question. And then, so so James cannot say anything other than what you type. Okay? So the, actually, that is the reality of AI, and that is so. Uh, ordinary people should be aware about this fact. You know? So just listening to the outcome, people tend to think, wow, James is a thinking person. It's an agent, agent. but the reality is not. So once they look at how AI is trained or how the out output product is made, probably that will help average people understand what the nature, real nature, nature of AI. Well, I'm a little bit worried, Taiwan, in view of what you've just said. That if James has any feelings, that you've just hurt his feelings. Um, <laughs> but I'm wondering, since James has done a little bit of our work for us today, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can elaborate on your thinking about what does the existence and proliferation of artificial intelligence. What implications does it have for human work, for you know, replacing the work that we might do, for good or for ill? Uh, that is an important question, and also at the same time, very complicated question. So first, let's look at the data. Um, I like data actually, and um, according to data and surveys, academic rigorous papers, uh, it is true that much of our work will be replaced or automated by AI in the coming two decades, which is true. But um, I believe part of the purpose of future studies is uh, we avoid what has been forecasted. So we can avoid what has been forecasted. Uh, and, and, and also, 
it's very complicated question because automation is costly. Robots are very expensive. So the mere fact that a certain robot can replace your labor does not mean that the robot will replace your labor because companies have to pay. So Boston Dynamics robots are very nice things, well working, but very expensive. So therefore it's a lot easy, easier to and less costly, maybe offense to humans, but less costly to use human jettison. So it, it's first thing is a certain robot can replace you. That's a engineering problem. The second problem is uh, economics problem. Would that be less costly than hiring humans? And third question is philosophical. So we have to think about impact of automation upon humans, especially what work plays in our life. Meaning, respect, and self-esteem. If work plays a very important role in our lives to live a meaningful life, then what's, what's the point of automating? Because so that is philosophical question. And unfortunately, we do not see much discussion about the third question, except for Christopher, you. So uh, we as society have to think about the philosophical question collectively, in addition to the first engineering question and the second economics question. Taiwan, how many years do you think it will be before we are talking on this podcast again about a novel that has been written by an artificially intelligent being? Will that ever happen? It can happen right now, actually. So GPT-3, once we're trained with uh, relevant data, uh, can summarize a book, even, uh, even following a certain uh, writer's style. Now, you can already find uh, GPT-2 or GPT-3-based uh, summarizing machine or uh, some machine actually wants you to put some uh, text, then it will create a blog for you, blog for post for you. And then you can use that text and you can just give, give the text to James, then James will read out. And I chose James because James has a British accent and there are, there are other types. And so, and one of my uh, friends who is working for Chapel Company told me that uh, people, think British accent, uh, people think uh, people have British accent are more trustworthy than American accent, maybe for some reason. So that's why I chose British accent with James. But Christopher, you know, this is important thing. So it's garbage in, garbage out. So data in and uh, data out, that's the concept. So therefore, uh, the outcomes will be in substance and form very similar to the inputs. So therefore, something spectacularly new won't be made with AI. So if you want to see something spectacularly new in stories, 
academic articles or any other things, then we should not rely on AI because it's in and out game. So the reading on your bedside table now is not written by AI. It's written by human beings. What, what book are you reading right now? Nothing. Please recommend me the next book. Well, that's one of the purposes of this podcast, so you'll have to listen to future episodes. Taiwan and James also, I want to thank both of you for joining me today for this work in progress. Thank you. And to our listeners, if you're interested in reading Taiwan Kim's full review of Ian McEwan's book, Machines Like Me, it was recently published in the Journal of Business Ethics and will be available for free through April 2021. You can find a link to it on the website of the Melrose and the Toro Company Center for Principal Leadership website. Thank you again. Work in Progress with Christopher Michelson has been brought to you by the Melrose and the Toro Company Center for Principled Leadership at the University of St. Thomas.